Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analysts Jason Moser and Emily Flippin. Good to see you both. Addy. Good to see you, Chris. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We've got a new documentary about money that you're going to want to hear about. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with the big macro. On Friday, both the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average hit new all-time highs. Earlier in the week, no less an authority than J.P. Morgan Chase Chairman and CEO Jamie Dimon said he is bullish on the U.S. economy over the next few years. This was in Diamond's annual letter to shareholders. Jason, a lot of people get nervous when the market hits all-time highs. Jamie Dimon is not one of them. Where do you want to start? I mean, I guess there are a few different ways we we could look at this. I mean, the the, the letter that that Mr. Diamond wrote, um, very extensive. I mean, it was a long read for sure. But I mean, I, I think there were a lot of good thoughts in there. And and with the market at all-time highs, I mean, I generally actually agree with with uh, with, with his bullishness. And I think there are a few. Things that are really impacting this. So, so first and foremost, I mean, it's it's worth considering at least that the opportunities, the growth opportunities that technology is opening up for us now versus what has been available to us historically. Uh, I, I mean, I mean, we're in the middle of Industry 4.0, right? I mean, all of this technology that's come about over the last couple of decades, we're now seeing. The potential of all of that technology being unleashed, right? Computers are connected; they're communicating with one another. They're running factories. We've got cyber physical systems doing things that we never thought were possible. Internet of Things. I mean, just there's just so much potential there with technology. So, so while the future is always uncertain, there is some certainty in the fact that technology is making things possible we never could have imagined, and we still can't even fully grasp yet. So, it's understandable that investors are excited about that and want to be a part of it. Secondly, I think that. Like like Jamie Dimon said, we have excess savings, new stimulus savings, huge deficit spending, more QE, new potential infrastructure bills, successful vaccine, and euphoria around the end of the pandemic. I mean, I think all of this put together, it's hard to imagine the U.S. economy not booming from that. Right? That is just an amalgamation amalgamation of a lot of good things that should continue to benefit the economy. So I understand that perspective as well. And then one more thing, just to keep in mind too, it is interesting to note. According to Finra, investors had borrowed $814 billion against their portfolios by the end of February of this year. So, that's essentially that's margin. That's that margin debt that we talk about for investors. That was up 49% from a year ago. It's at a record high. It's the fastest annual increase since 2007. Okay. Before that, the last time borrowings had grown so quickly, that was during the dot com bubble of 1999. So, like we say with margin, I mean, margin, I don't, I don't mean margin to me, it's not inherently good or bad, but it does amplify things both on the way up and on the way down. Clearly, margin is something that's in play for investors these days. Uh, it seems like it's making the good times a little bit better right now, and, and that could be a contributing factor as well. But I think there are a lot of reasons for that bullishness that, uh, that, that I would subscribe. To. So for me, and I think that what we try to to tell our our uh, listeners, our members, this is why we adopt that philosophy of always always being invested, right? Because because over the long haul, uh, this these are the types of opportunities that that really come into play here. We want to be a part of this. Emily, what do you think? 
I think it was really interesting just how much time Diamond spent building up what a robust rebound the economy is going to experience while also having such a negative tone. I'm I'm honestly impressed by his ability to both make me really sad but also really optimistic at the same time. It was it was like this weird paradox where we are expected to have some spending increases, right? This quantitative easing, it could help the economy into 2023. And then also this underlying level of, well, we're just kind of dysfunctional right now too. Like the growth could be even greater if we weren't so dysfunctional, not on just a political level, but on an economic level as well. Constellation Brands wrapped up their fiscal year in style. Fourth quarter profits came in higher than expected for the beer, wine, and spirits company. Despite the good results, shares of Constellation Brands down 5% this week. Emily, is this because of guidance? Like, we're not going to drink as much alcohol over the next 12 months as we did during the pandemic? Well, I don't know about anybody else, but I know that's not an issue when it comes to me. So I don't think that's what investors are particularly worried about. I think what investors are missing is remembering back to just a few months ago when you look down at the main demographic for Constellation Brands, which is Hispanic Americans, and how they were impacted because of the weather in key areas like Texas last quarter. So I think investors saw depletion numbers as it applies to their beer brands kind of lower than expected, while also not remembering that there were a lot of actually weather-related phenomena that decreased their period over the last quarter for which they could expect to be selling through to their key demographics, especially for their Modelo brand. So I think that might have gotten investors a little bit caught up. But what I think was really interesting was just what a shining star beer was for this quarter. Uh, Constellation Brands has been in the process of pulling down on its wine business in particular, but even with their pretty robust spirits offering, uh, management spent virtually the entire call talking about beer and the expected double-digit growth they're having in many of their key brands, in particular Modelo and as well Corona, their Corona hard seltzer brands. These are some product innovations that we haven't seen from the likes of Constellation Brands for quite a while. So when you see double digit level depletions coming out of some of these new innovations, uh, I think that is probably what investors should be focused on, as opposed to just some weather-related pull-downs we experienced over the past quarter. Yeah, for all of the success we've seen, Emily, with various alcohol companies pushing forward with seltzer brands, it seems like Constellation was a little late to the game with that, but uh, you know, Bill Nillens has been CEO for two years. It, it seems like the ship has been steadied under his leadership. What's really interesting is while you're right that they were slow to the uptake for things like hard seltzer, they had 90% depletion growth in Corona hard seltzer, and it's the second fastest moving hard seltzer brand in the United States right now. So, despite them being slow to the uptake, they've actually managed to lever a lot of the attention that the Corona brand has and apply it to the hard seltzer business to be one of the best hard seltzer selling brands in the US right now. They're launching a second variety pack, and that could be a real tailwind heading into 2021. According to a new report from research firm eMarketer, the digital advertising landscape is shifting. Google and Facebook are still the dominant players, but Amazon's ad revenue in 2020 was more than 50% higher than the previous year, and their market share has increased to more than 10% of the overall market. eMarketer expects that number to steadily grow over the next three years, too, Jason. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I would agree with that. I mean, it makes sense to me at least, and I, I think for investors, you look at this from the perspective that even a little piece of a 
really big pie can still be a lot. And, and I think that's what we're seeing here with Amazon. I mean, digital ad spend may not be a part of the thesis, but it doesn't hurt the cause. And, and if you look at the numbers, I mean, Amazon's US ad revenue close to $16 billion last year. Um, I mean, that's you know, it's like maybe four percent of their overall business, right? I mean, that's really not all that terribly meaningful. But it grew fifty three percent from a year ago, and that uh, that to me it makes sense. I mean, I think when you look at ad the ad ad business along with e commerce, and you couple those together, I mean, to me, it seems like it'd be a lot easier to develop an ad business around a mature e commerce business than the other way around, right? And so, I mean, I'd argue that Google and Facebook's efforts. To penetrate commerce have been marginal at best, and I and I honestly don't think that's going to change meaningfully at all. And, and and part of that is just because beyond Amazon, there's so many other companies that just do it way way better. And and it's it's not like Facebook and Google haven't tried; they have. It's just it's it's just not really anything that's sticking for them. So I I, I think that's encouraging for Amazon and that they're continuing to build this out. I, th- I think one thing too in regard to Amazon's ad business they have that Google and Facebook uh, and other social platforms. For example, don't have you know, Amazon's not really. They don't have to worry about the political risk so much, right? I mean, it's not they're, they're not they're not advertising for entertainment or for social. They're advertising for commerce, and so they don't face that same kind of, of political risk. I think that other companies like Facebook and Google might face. Uh, so, so to me, while it may not be a big part of the thesis uh, for Amazon, it certainly doesn't hurt the cause, and, and it's nice to see them continuing to gain share. I think that ought to continue. Well, and it's not like Amazon doesn't have other potential regulatory problems with the United States government. It very well might, but I think that's not a point to be glossed over, that they're making their money not by providing platforms for different social groups. They're just trying to get people to buy stuff. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, there is an entertainment aspect to it, right? I mean, there is Fire TV. I mean, those devices are becoming more prevalent in, in folks' living rooms, and, and, and they are selling advertising via Fire TV. They're, they're getting more into the podcast and music world as well. So there is that entertainment angle, and, and, and they have to at least keep that political type risk at, at the back of their mind. Uh, but, but again, it, it, it's not the nature of their business, it's not really the primary driver of the business. Amazon's looking to shake up another industry, only this time it's an industry that Amazon's already competing in. Details coming up after the break. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Emily Flippin. Later in the show, we're going to get to the stocks on our radar, but if you're looking for even more stock ideas and recommendations, Check out our flagship service, Stock Advisor. You get recommendations from Tom and David Gardner. You get their best buys now and a lot more. Just go to radarstocks.fool.com and you'll get 50% off just for being one of the dozens of listeners. Again, that's radarstocks.fool.com. Okta, the identity security company, held an investor day on Wednesday. And I don't know what management told investors, Emily, but in just two days, the stock is up nearly 10%. What happened? I think expectations were low for Okta heading into their investor day. For years now, Okta's growth has slowed. And while they've been dominant in identity management, I think people were skeptical of their ability to continue to fuel growth in the future. And Okta actually had this 
big acquisition that they announced last month that was also weighing on the mind of investors. So heading into this investor day, I think people were were not expecting very much in terms of guidance. So what Okta came out with, which included a, a lot of interesting product launches, was more than what was expected. Uh, they spent a majority of their investor day talking about new platform services, things that would expand Okta's total addressable market, in particular, movement into identity governance and privileged access management. These are cloud-based services that can exist as upsells to Okta's existing identity management customers. But where I think I still have the biggest questions as an investor, and it's something that they didn't spend a ton of time talking about that I wish they would, is this acquisition of Auth0. They spent nearly $7 billion in all stock, or are planning to, to acquire Auth0, which is a competitor to Okta in the single sign-on market. And the only difference, the only thing they're really acquiring here is a different go-to-market strategy. So whether or not that's worth the hefty price tag, I think is still yet to be seen. Amazon is already in the grocery industry because it's the parent company of Whole Foods. But this week, the company confirmed it plans to open new grocery store concepts on the East Coast later this year. Jason, Amazon's being pretty cagey with details, but if you connect the dots on what we know so far, I think it seems reasonable to assume that these stores are going to have name brand products, they're going to have some high-tech things that will enable Amazon Prime members to shop more quickly. You may ask the question why they continue to pursue this grocery strategy, or even if they are necessarily certain how they want to pursue this grocery strategy. Um, I certainly understand why they're doing it, though. I mean, the total sales generated by grocery stores in the United States in 2020 uh, were, were 760 billion US US dollars. I mean, like that—that—that's a lot, a lot of money, right? A big, a big market opportunity here, just domestically alone. Um, you look at, at pure play grocers like Kroger, for example. They brought in 132 billion dollars in revenue over the last year. So, so this is a big market opportunity, and they're trying to figure. Out exactly how uh, to pursue it. They're trying a few different things. Um, yeah, the Whole Foods acquisition is probably what's at the forefront of most most investors' minds these days. I mean, trying to figure out exactly was that really the right thing to do? Um, what does an Amazon Fresh have that a Whole Foods doesn't have? And one thing I think, um, and this is really something that I think we continue to talk about, it is brand risk uh, with with a variety of companies. And maybe there still is a little bit of a brand risk uh, with Whole Foods. I don't know. I mean, that 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 whole paycheck identity that it it, it earned so so long ago. I mean that doesn't just leave consumers' minds. I think I think there's always a bit of an association there. So maybe that's something that the Amazon Fresh concept has that that uh, can can sort of counter that that Whole Foods brand risk if it does exist. Um, there is the crossover consumer to consider as well. I mean, a lot of a lot of folks like to be able to get their organic produce. And their peanut butter crunch at the same place, Chris. Right? I mean, I'm one of those guys, right? I love. I'm a crossover consumer, and I think a lot of folks out there are. Um, and so maybe this Amazon Fresh concept can cater to that as well. Obviously, testing and learning on the tech side as well. Um, and and listen, if if you're still bitter about the Whole Foods acquisition, I think what they paid 13, 14 billion dollars for it in 2017. Well, our earlier story that that ad business that that seems so meaningless to Amazon's business, fifteen. Billion plus dollars in annual revenue there. There. That paid for the whole Whole Foods acquisition right there. Their ad business found money. They just bought Whole Foods uh, for it. And, 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 you know, that's maybe that that ought to take a little little bit of the pressure off, right? 
Absolutely. <laughs> Shares of Fubo TV up more than 15% on Friday. The sports streaming service won the rights to some qualifying matches for the Men's World Cup in 2022. Emily, you and I were talking before the show started. Uh, getting the rights to these matches, it seemed like a good move. It seemed like a win. I wasn't expecting it to be a win to the tune of the stock being up 15%. I'm not sure if this deal alone justifies today's stock rise, but I think the stock rise itself is indicative of expectations for what Fubo could become. Before this deal, Fubo was a smaller player, and to an extent, it still is a smaller player today, but they've proven that we're a new entrant, we're a smaller player, but we're competitive enough that we can get exclusive rights to 70 qualifying matches for the 2022 World Cup. That's critical to delivering on, on Fubo's value proposition because they've constantly angled themselves as a streaming service provider that's sports first. So this is a critical win. The, those 70 qualifying matches themselves, right? That probably doesn't justify a 15% bump in the stock price. But what it means for Fubo in the future, I could make a compelling argument that this changes the game, that Fubo is no longer going to be a smaller player, but going to be uh, critical, right? for what it means to be a sports watcher in the future. And that's especially critical because right now, FUBA generates a majority of their revenue from inside the United States. Majority of their 500,000 paying subscribers are from the United States. The fact that they're able to get some, some World Cup matches where the majority of watchers are outside of the United States could also mean a lot for their ability to expand internationally. So it was definitely a good thing. If I had to predict, I would not have guessed that the stock had moved so aggressively today. But as I thought about it more, started to make more sense. Well, and it could be one of those things that gets a lot of people to kick the tires on Fubu, uh, Fubo TV as a service, um, and maybe they get uh, sucked in and they say, well, I'm just going to do this for the qualifying matches, but then if they enjoy it enough, if they check out the other offerings, then they've got a whole lot of new customers. And Fubo has a really interesting way of monetizing those customers. It's an expensive service to buy. The lowest cost service for subscribers are around $65 a month. So if you're paying for Fubo, you're a big sports fan. All right, Emily Flip and Jason Moser, we will see you later in the show. A new documentary about money poses the question, just how savvy are you? Award-winning filmmaker Robin Hauser is next. So stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. At some point in their lives, the overwhelming majority of women will be solely responsible for their finances. Yet, a growing number of women leave their financial decisions up to their spouse. This topic is at the heart of Savvy, a new documentary from award-winning filmmaker Robin Hauser. She profiles a number of women in the film, including a group who became friends over their shared love of tennis and turned that into their own investment club in the 1980s. When she talked with my colleague Patricia Bages, Hauser explained how crucial the bond of friendship was in building their confidence as investors. That seems important because, number one, it's a different generation, right? Um, and, and it's a group of women that have been together for over 50 years now. 
Um, yeah, that's right. For some of them have been together for 50 years. And this idea that um, they became empowered through learning about the stock market, right? Back in the 80s, it was not very common for women to be involved in the stock market and to, for women to be investors. And so through this bond of this investment club, they learned about stocks. They learned about how to research and how to invest. And it was a lot more difficult back then than it is now, just doing it, say, on Robinhood or on some quick app, right? So, um, but I think the most important thing that these women learned through that was the self-confidence that they gained. It was really empowering for them to know about this, to make their own money, um, to not be intimidated by the stock market, and to be able to sort of hold their head high if they were at a cocktail party and the men were talking about that or or what have you. Definitely. I think one of my favorite parts, too, in the interview is when they talk about going to the shareholder meetings and they ask them if they know where they're where they are, if they're supposed to be there. And like, we just walked right in. We knew where we where we were supposed to be. I loved that. Yeah, They're like, sorry, this is only for shareholders. And they said, well, we're shareholders. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was uh, I was loved them. They were great. So when you were planning the the narrative arc of this film and you wanted to show the different types of um, women that had different um, parts of their financial lives that they were working on. You have a woman who struggles with credit card debt, a, a woman who struggles with student loans, um, a woman who was struggling with understanding where the state of their finances were when her husband passed away. How did you decide what moments in someone's financial life you wanted to cover in your film? We started looking in just stories and where what are the typical um, situations where people do, not just women, right? Um, but where people get into trouble with money, credit card debt, high, high interest credit cards. That was an obvious. And the story about Yanelli Espinal, who first generation American, she's obviously very bright. She's on a full ride scholarship at an Ivy league college. And she walks out of class one day and there's a big bank with a tent set up, giving away free pizza, free shirts, free credit, you know, and they're like, just sign here for a credit card. <laughs> And she's like, yeah, you don't know the background I come from. My parents don't even have credit cards. And um, and they said, no, no, go ahead and sign up. But nobody ever taught her how a credit card works. Nobody ever, you know, and she did everything she was asked to do. It said, just pay here, pay the minimum amount. And she figured as long as she paid the minimum amount, she'd be fine. And she ended up with over $20,000 in credit card debt as a college student. Um, and, you know, who's who's fault is that? I mean, she doesn't blame anybody else. She she recognizes that she probably should have learned a little bit more about it. But it's so easy. It seems like free money and it's so tempting. And the system doesn't teach you. Their schools don't teach you about that. The bank certainly didn't go beyond, you know, to, they didn't say you have to read the small print, right? So um, that was an important story to tell. And then Caitlin Boston talks about how her parents who, you know, weren't were educated, but didn't have high degrees, um, were so excited about sending her to college and then to grad school because they had this very, very bright adopted daughter. Um, they, as she says, out of financial sort of illiteracy, high, signed up for some of these really, really expensive private student loans. Um, and Caitlin ended up with $222,000 in student loan debt. Took her years to pay it off. But her story was inspiring because she did pay it off. And so did Yanelli, right? Both of these women have beautiful story arcs because they paid it off, they became empowered, and they're now doing whatever they can to advance um, what they learned, you know, to help uh, share these stories with other women so that they can learn. That's awesome. 
One, um, one maybe misconception people might have about the film is that it only applies to women, which anybody who watches this film can gain plenty of financial knowledge um, from it. Um, what do you think is a way that somebody who is having a hard time having these financial conversations with maybe a parent or a spouse can do that in a way it, where a topic, it can be so sensitive. There's some sensitive topics you cover in the film with like suicide and financially abusive relationships. Do you have tips for anybody who wants to have that conversation with people in their lives to get that going? Yeah. Tanya Rapley, who's in the film and talks about financial abuse, said the other day, it's about tact, timing and tone. And I really I want to borrow that from her because I think that's absolutely right. When you're talking about your partner, about money, uh, you have to it has to be the right time. You have to approach it sort of gingerly. Um, and it's really about, it's about what you say, right? But it's about saying, Hey, look, I want to learn about our finances. I need to know how much do we have saved? How much do we put away into savings? Um, how much do you make? You know, here's how much I make. Do you have any debt? I mean, these are such important questions to anybody that's thinking about getting into a serious relationship with anyone else. And like you said, this is regardless of gender, right? Even in same-sex relationships, women tend to abdicate financial decisions. 41% of them do, which is fascinating because each one of us really needs to be aware of our money situation. And if you happen to be married to somebody who works in the financial market, and or the financial industry, and they are clearly the one who's who's more savvy about it, that's okay, but it doesn't mean you can stick your head in the sand. It means you have somebody that you can learn from. You have to know how to be financially independent because as you know, Chanel Reynolds' story uh, shows us, you could be happy one day, happily married, living maybe on the edge, a little financial fragility, but everything is good until it's not. And, you know, when her husband got into a serious bike accident, uh, she had to learn the hard way that she didn't, you know, they hadn't executed their wills. They didn't, she didn't know where the mortgage was. She didn't know about what type of insurance they had. So um, these are just important things that we all need to be part of. And, you know, then there's financial abuse and it doesn't matter how much money you make or don't make um, the people that are part of uh, you know, financial abuse, it, it, it does, it crosses all sorts of socioeconomic boundaries. And I think that, um, in order to, you know, not let yourself be subject to financial abuse, it's hugely important, um, to be financially independent so that if you do need to get out of a bad situation, you can. Definitely. One of my favorite parts, probably my favorite subtle part of your film is when you have Aaron, who is getting divorced, talking with the financial planner who specializes in divorce, going through all the things that she doesn't have her name on their shared business, that she's not really sure what her living expenses are. And then you immediately juxtapose it with Caitlin and Apollo, who are laughing on the couch, happy, but admit to the struggles that they have in these conversations about money where he, she even relays this time when he would say she's naggy and she's like, I'm not naggy because I I'm knowledgeable and I'm helping you. And I think that was such a clever thing because you're, you're watching Aaron and you, if you feel really bad for her and you hope that's not you and you're like, what does it look like successfully? And you show what it looks like successfully. And I think that's such a powerful moment, both through your storytelling it, but just as viewers to see, it's not perfect. It's bickery sometimes, but that's what it could be like when it's equally shared. Yeah. And I'm glad you, you appreciated that because it is a delicate balance and, and it was really important to show 
um, I, I really wanted to show divorce scene. And I, I, I feel for women going through divorce. I've been there, so I know what that's like. Um, and I think what's interesting is that, and, and Christelle says this, she says, you know, divorce lawyers are really good at what they do. Most of them, of course, but they're not financial experts. And so, you know, there, there's, there's something odd about the fact that, uh, women and men are supposed to come out of divorce equal in terms of division of, of resources and finances. And yet five years down the line, you know, the man is suddenly, you know, way up here and the woman stays down like this. And, and uh, that's a problem. So going through some of the mistakes that women typically make, um, believing that all assets are equal. Well, we know they're not right. Or keeping the house and thinking that's a fair trade for, you know, cash. I mean, again, it's not because a house has, has a mortgage usually, and a house has expenses and a house has property taxes. And so these are just things that women need to be aware of. And what happens in divorce is women just want it to be over. They just want it to be done and they leave really important things and really important financial aspects on the table. In your documentary, along with um, focusing obviously on divorce and marriage, you talk a lot about millennials and you have Ms. Dow Jones, who is an internet personality that helps millennials um, understand more of their finances. And one statistic that I think is mentioned pretty early on is that 54% of millennial women leave financial decisions to their spouse, which is up from the generation beforehand. I'm curious your thoughts on why that may be. You know, this is a generation that entered the job market from like 2008 to 2010, which is one of the worst times to join, and now maybe is getting a second wave with the pandemic. Do you have any thoughts on why that number is trending up for them? So this is the million dollar question, right? You know, why is it that that millennials, millennial women above any other generation tend to um, you know, have their head in the sand when it comes to finances. They're the ones that tend to abdicate financial decisions to somebody else in their life. And usually that's not a financial advisor, right? That's their husbands or their partners. And, and why is that, you know, is that the Cinderella effect? Is it the fact that women, when it comes down to it, just want to be taken care of? Is it biological in that way? Is it because of the stereotypes in our society that suggest that women aren't good at math? Um, it, it's a quandary. It's really a quandary. And, and for those of us that really thought, okay, I get it. My grandmother used to do this. My mom used to do this. I mean, after all, it was what 1970s when a woman could get a credit card on her own or open a bank account on her own. Um, so maybe, you know, this is getting better with my kids, with my generation or with younger, it's not necessarily getting better. And is it because in the division of labor in a household, women, predominantly are the, you know, primary caretakers of children, um, do the volunteer hours for the schools because, you know, we're so busy and we just leave that to the men. And the other side of this that I think is interesting is that what type of pressure does that put on men? So if society is suggesting that it's, you know, finance is a male territory, let's be real. They don't innately know more about the stock market than we do right? Of course they don't. But if, the, if pressure in society is saying to them, this is what you're going to need to take care of when you get married, um, then that puts an enormous amount of pressure on them. And, you know, as, as a few different financial advisors have told me, well, they're better at faking it till they make it, you know, than we are maybe. But they're not more innately savvy at all. The, the Sally Krawcheck talks about how the stock market is made by men for men. Mm -hmm. And she talks about how that wasn't intentionally to leave women out, right? Nobody ever said, let's keep the women out of this. 
But because there were no women there to design it at the time, they didn't think their women weren't top of mind. And so all these warlike analogies, you know, they're crushing it and they with a boom and all of these just really hardcore, um, you know, type of lingo that goes along with the stock market, plus all the acronyms, it, it sidelines women, it marginalizes women and it's, and it's intimidating. And I think when you get to a certain age as a woman and you are well-educated, you're almost ashamed that you don't know more about the stock market or more about how your 401k is being invested, right? Um, so we need to change that, especially because in the next few years, there's going to be the greatest transfer of wealth. And that transfer of wealth is into the hands of women and women need to become savvy about money. Savvy is making its premiere at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. You can find more information on their website. Up next, Emily Flippin and Jason Moser return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I want a girl with a mind like a diamond. I want a girl who knows what's best. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. I mentioned before the break, you can find more information on the documentary on the Santa Barbara International Film Festival website. Even better, you can go to the film's website, which is SavvyFilm.com. Just make sure you put in a hyphen between Savvy and Film. So, Savvy-Film.com. Two quick stories before we get to Radar Stocks. Last year, Clubhouse launched. It's a social media app that hosts live audio conversations. Reports this week, Emily, that Twitter looked into buying Clubhouse for $4 billion, but things appear to be on hold. Which outcome should Twitter shareholders be rooting for? If I was a Twitter shareholder, I would not want them to spend $4 billion buying Clubhouse, not only because they're building out their own voice platform called Spaces, but also because I just Hate it? Uh, am I the only one? <laughs> am I the only one who feels this way about Clubhouse? But it feels like a special form of torture, having to be invited to a conversation with people who perceive themselves to be experts on topics. I mean, sounds like absolutely <laughs> no fun to me. Given the choice, I'm going to the dentist ten times out of ten. Emily, I'm right there with you. <laughs> this week, indoor farming company App Harvest bought Root AI, a robotics startup. In a deal worth $60 million, that's not a big price tag, Jason, but shares of App Harvest fell on the news. Do you like this deal? Yeah, it's a big price tag, but you don't make any money, Chris, and App Harvest really doesn't make any money yet. I think they're guiding for something in the neighborhood of $20 to $30 billion in revenue this year, but it's a SPAC that just came public, and they are very, very new to the game. Um, I, I love the looks I get when folks ask me for intriguing 5G ideas, and I tell them about App Harvest, but it is it is about ag tech. Ag tech is a thing bringing in conventional agricultural techniques together with modern day technology, and that's what this deal is. Uh, Root AI supplies machine vision systems uh, that can determine when fruits and vegetables are ripe and ready, if there's overcrowding or harvest issues, monitor these controlled uh, environment agricultural facilities. So, uh, to me, this is right in line with what App Harvest does. It also presents them with some optionality going forward and perhaps being able to license that technology out to other markets beyond just their core fruit, uh, fruits and vegetables uh, offerings. 
All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Emily Flippin, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? So my radar stock for this week is a business called Sprout Social. The ticker is SPT, and they're a social media management tool that provides a one-stop shop for companies and individuals to manage their social media presences. So this lets them do things like schedule tweets or manage their engagement, but they also provide analytics, reputation management, and public relations services as well. Dan, question about Sprout Social? Absolutely. Chris, at the risk of sounding too much like Ron Gross, this sounds like (laughs) the most millennial company ever. And I am a millennial. I will not lie, Dan. I am aware of this company because back when I was in college, I did an internship at a think tank that used a competitor that was free called Hootsuite. And I spent a majority of my very millennial internship managing tweets. And while it may not be the most fun investment for somebody who is and active on social media, I can say from firsthand experience, the demand is very high. Jason Moser, what are you looking at this week? Yeah, I've been digging more into a company called Sienna. Ticker is C-I-E-N. And Sienna provides hardware, software, and services that enable the transport, the routing, the switching, the aggregation and delivery of video and data and voice traffic all across the internet and communications networks. Uh, if you you look at the drivers there in things like mobile and over the top streaming, cloud based services, IoT, five G, uh, edge computing, I mean these are all drivers for Sienna's business. So there are some tailwinds developing. Uh, they have a very broad customer base with communication service providers like Verizon and AT and T, among others, uh, like cable and multi service operators, uh, enterprises, governments, research customers. Uh, but it's it's an interesting business. It's fiscally fit. Gross margin hovers in the 45% range. They have uh, around $330 million net cash on the balance sheet. Nice, nice cash flow rich business. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's one I'm digging into. Dan, question about Sienna? Yeah, sure. Jason, this is an almost $9 billion company, and I've never heard of it. What, <laughs> what's going on? Why have I never heard of Sienna? Well, I mean, in today's world, Dan, $9 billion is chump change, right? That's a new small cat. That's why you've never heard of it. What do you want to add to your watch list, Dan? I'll tell you what, I'm just not sold on the idea of social media management. Maybe it's that I'm not millennial enough these days. So I'm going to have to go with the the unsung hero, Sienna. Love it. Emily Flippin, Jason Moser, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. Our producer is Matt Creer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.